So good morning again. Welcome to Tisarna. Today we, this weekend, we're celebrating Vesak, the life of the Buddha, the birth, enlightenment, and parinibbana of our great teacher. So each of us has our own sense of gratitude, respect, awe, wonder. Each of us has our own feeling uh, around the life of the Buddha and how the Buddha has influenced us and helped us and inspired us and edified us. So that's, I think it's the main thing that each of us goes to that place of gratitude and devotion and allows that to become conscious. So we have this beautiful Buddha image as a symbol, as, as a reminder, uh, but then we have our own experience of the Dhamma that the Buddha gave us. So please do go to that. And then the readings hopefully will stimulate uh, a sense of devotion and gratitude. The, the heart of gratitude, the heart of devotion, I think is much more strongly expressed in Asian cultures, in cultures where, where Buddhism is part of their heritage, part of their upbringing. As Westerners, we quite often approach Buddhism from uh, mindfulness, from uh, psychology, from uh, intellectual, philosophical ways of approaching the teaching. And these are, these are good, uh, but then we also have the heart, the heart of devotion, the heart of gratitude, the heart of the Brahma-viharas. So you might just contemplate, how do you, how do you look at a, at a Buddha image? How do you contemplate the life of the Buddha in a way to bring forth that sense of gratitude rather than Buddhism just being um, an attempt to get enlightened or um, some mindfulness strategy to be more efficient in life. The, the movement towards devotion and gratitude is very, very uplifting and it's very much counter to desire, counter to craving. It uplifts the heart. Craving suppresses the heart or depresses the heart. So these readings then we will use, the readings originally come from the canon, uh, that's the, where we have the life of the Buddha from the canon. And, and Vesak is a celebration of, of the birth. So I'll read about what a couple of sections here about the birth of the Buddha, and then it, we'll finish the day with the readings on Parinibbana. And we we usually don't we don't say that the Buddha died because it really wouldn't make sense. The body died, but we use the word Parinibbana. So there's a ultimate realization there that is beyond words you can't really figure out with words. Certainly the body died. So, we were born, these bodies will die, and in between you have the enlightenment. And that's our work. That's our work to try to realize what the Buddha realized, and his teaching gave us hope and, and, uh, and a path, and instruction, and uh, encouragement <coughs> to do the work that, that we're all doing here as, as, as we uh, practice and meditate together. So let me begin with the readings uh, from these two books. This is from the sort of introduction to the life of the Buddha by Bhikkhunyanamoli. Indian history actually begins with the story of Buddha Gautama's life, or to put it perhaps more exactly, that is the point where history as record replaces archaeology and legend. For the documents of the Buddha's life and teaching, the earliest Indian documents to be accorded historical standing 
reveal a civilization already stable and highly developed which can only have matured after a very long period indeed. Now the Buddha attained his complete enlightenment at Uruvela in the Ganges plain which is called the middle country. As distances are reckoned in India it was not very far from the immemorial holy city of Benares. His struggle to attain enlightenment had lasted six years and he was then 35 years old. From that time onward he wandered from place to place in central India for the space of 45 years, constantly explaining the Four Noble Truths that he had discovered. The final Parinibbana took place as it is now calculated in Europe in the year 543 BC, traditionally on the full moon day of the month of May. And so the month of May is called Vesak. The period through which he lived seems to have been outstandingly quiet, with the governments well organized, and a stable society in marked contrast with what must have gone before and come after. Three months from the time of the Buddha's Parinibbana, his senior disciples, so this is the Buddha has passed away, how do we say that, after the Parinibbana, three months from the time of the Buddha's Parinibbana, his senior disciples, who survived him, summoned a council of 500 senior monks in order to agree upon the form in which the Master's teaching should be handed down to posterity. Among these 500, all of whom had realized enlightenment, the elderly Upali was the acknowledged authority on the rules of conduct for the Sangha or monastic order, which are called the Vinaya or the Discipline. In lay life a barber, he had gone forth into the life of homelessness along with the Buddha's cousin, Ananda, and others. He was appointed to recite before the council the rules of conduct together with the circumstances that caused them to be laid down. The main part of the coffer of the discipline, the Vinaya Pitaka, was composed there from his recitation. When he had finished, the elder Ananda was invited to recite the discourses. During the last 24 years of the Buddha's life, he had been the Buddha's personal attendant, and he was gifted with an extraordinary memory. Almost the whole of the collection of the discourses in the coffer of discourses, or the Sitapitaka, was composed from his recitation of them with their settings. The elder Upali began each account with the words, Tena Samayena, the occasion was this, but the elder Ananda prefaced each discourse with an account of where and to whom it was spoken, beginning with the words, Ewang Me Sutang, thus I heard. So the narrative of the Buddha's life is taken from these two coffers. So that's how we, in, pa, in the Pali tradition, that's how we get the history of the Buddha. So those of you who weren't here this morning, we, we are contemplating the life of the Buddha today. This morning we had a reading from the birth. We offer to read something from the Enlightenment, and Ajahn, if you want to comment, please do. <laughs> don't tempt me. Don't tempt me. So, <laughs> uh, so that's, yeah, please. Let's see if the mic works for me.
Well, this uh, first book that we're reading from is called The Buddha, The Story of an Awakened Life by David Kyardian. And the second one is The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nyanamoli. Once again, Siddhartha was alone, but joined to his path that now carried him in an easterly direction. There was joy in his heart and sadness for he was leaving the place of his first liberation and he was leaving behind his first teacher. While on his way, he heard of another teacher, not far distant, by the name of Udraka. When he presented himself to the master, he explained what he had received from his former teacher and also what he was searching for. Udraka had achieved a new level of meditation that he called neither perception nor non-perception. Siddhartha set himself to learn what this meant, working with all his might and with the will he had developed under his first teacher's tutelage. When Siddhartha had achieved the freedom inherent in this practice, Udraka, like Kalama, assured his pupil that he had no more to teach him, and he, too, asked Siddhartha to remain with him and to take leadership over his community of monks. Siddhartha refused, explaining that although he was able to stand beyond the space occupied by form and formlessness, he knew that the witness that could watch was not free, but must remain and enter again the cycle of suffering in its next rebirth. Therefore, Siddhartha told Udraka, I have not yet achieved enlightenment. My goal is yet before me. As Siddhartha travelled about the country, he began to observe the ascetics who had committed themselves to self-denial by way of a strict discipline that each of them had worked out for himself. Some thought that they could achieve enlightenment through the limiting of food intake, bordering on starvation. Others immersed themselves in cold streams and rivers during the winter months, or sat naked before blazing fires, enduring flames that blistered their flesh. Some took up their abode in regions where corpses had been abandoned, and where they also took a code of silence. And still others tried to live on grasses alone, behaving for better or worse like the sacred cows they admired. After crossing the Nairanjana River, Siddhartha ascended Mount Gaya and came to a forested region near the village of Sena in the Uruvilva district. He settled himself there and began to devise his own austerities in pursuit of enlightenment. Siddhartha's past experiences had shown him that he could not achieve his goal by studying with acknowledged masters, for they had taken him as far as they could. He would have to master himself and evolve a teaching based solely on his own experience and understanding. In the quiet village of Sena, along the banks of the river Nairanjana, in the shade of its towering trees, he found a place propitious and inviting, where he could begin the next phase of his work for liberation. As he began to fa fathom the purposes of the ascetic life, Siddhartha saw, too, that his way would be different from that of the other ascetics. For it was clear that each of those he had observed sought deliverance for themselves alone, some to avoid unfavourable karma, others to avoid rebirth on the earthly plane. It was their detachment from life that troubled Siddhartha. And he asked himself how the ascetics differed from those involved in ceremonial rites and in the doing of various good work for the purpose of emancipation through mental discipline. If the seeker were to be of service to anyone, Siddhartha thought, wouldn't he first need to perfect himself through self-knowledge? 
If life was calamitous, didn't this calamity arise from the defective nature of each being? And wasn't it from there that the journey must begin? What I seek for mankind, Siddhartha reasoned, I seek first for myself. But really, there is no difference. I am mankind, and mankind is me. I must therefore purify myself. Moving through the wilds alone, Siddhartha came face to face with his fears. Unfamiliar noises terrified him. The sounds of animals unknown to him, the snapping of a branch, the far-off rumble of thunder. All these made him tremble and want to run away. He began, visit, he began visiting forest shrines at night, which filled him with terror and dread. But by standing firm and facing each fear as it arose in his mind, he began slowly to conquer this weakness in himself. By doing so, he saw that fear was perhaps his and man's greatest enemy, for it undermined hope and faith, as well as a healthy belief in oneself. The greatest fear, he realised, was that of one's own death. Once he had conquered this in himself, he felt he could endure anything in pursuit of his aim. Having recognised that the discursive mind is the enemy of the spirit, he devised an exercise for working on this problem. He began by clenching his teeth and pressing his tongue against the roof of his mouth, believing that in this way he could suppress his thoughts until his mind crumbled. He was attempting to use his mind to control his mind. But apart from strengthening his will, he saw that he was powerless to control or even subdue his thoughts. But, little by little, a certain mental clarity began to appear. Next, he attempted to arrive at a state in his meditations where his breathing had virtually stopped. But the result was a loud roaring in his ears and severe head pains. Although his mind was temporarily stilled by this practice, he could still not endure the pain in his body. He began to be more successful with his experiments when he realised that each was a product of his questing spirit and questioning mind, and in each case he arrived at a clarity that was unique to his nature. That was practical, realistic, and down-to-earth. He knew that truth in action was above truth in thought. Therefore, each experience provided him with the data he needed to fulfil his quest. He became more and more thorough in his experiments for all of these reasons. News of Gautama, as he was now known, began to spread, for it was said that he had equalled his master's conscious attainments, yet he had refused to share in the training of their adepts, instead striking out on his own to lead an ascetic life determined to reach enlightenment. The monks and ascetics came to observe him from a distance, and it was they who gave him the name of Gotama after his clan, for he was now no longer Siddhartha, but one of them, and yet not one of them, for they sensed that he would one day achieve nirvana. Among the seekers who came out of their own curiosity and need was the Brahmin Kondinya, who had attended the prince, prince's name-giving ceremony, predicting at the time that Siddhartha would one day achieve Buddhahood. Kondinya was now a homeless mendicant as well, and with his fellow seekers, called the Band of Five, that included Vashpa, Mahanama, Ashwajit and Badrika, had journeyed to Uruviva to become Gautama's disciples, imitating his austerities in the hope of achieving enlightenment for themselves. I am now practicing submission of the flesh, Gautama explained to his followers. When I began this practice some time ago, I decided I would eat in a day only what I could hold in the hollow of my hand. A few peas, beans, lentils or rice, 
or at most a single crab apple. Gotama had grown so frail from this practice that his followers began to tend to his immediate needs while also following his lead. Six years had passed since Gotama had left his home to become a wandering monk, but the enlightenment he sought seemed as far away, if not further away, than when he had first set out on foot on the path. By now, because of the mortifications to his flesh, he began to resemble an old man with withered skin and falling hair who had to be helped when he walked. His spinal column began to resemble a string of beads, his buttocks two camel hooves, his head a shrunken gourd, while his eyes, having faded into their sockets, began to resemble two distant stars in a reflecting well. One day, while struggling to reach the river's edge to bathe himself, he stumbled from exhaustion, unable to rise from the ground, until he grasped an overhanging branch that had mercifully bent down to help him to his feet. Gautama struggled as best he could until he reached the base of a banyan tree above the river's bank and sat down in great pain and bewilderment. At that moment, he remembered the peaceful bliss he had experienced in his youth, sitting under the rose apple tree, safely exploring with his mind that was at rest in the bosom of nature. Reflecting on that moment, he realized that the spirit cannot be tyrannized into freedom through the mortification of the flesh. The spirit is free. It's always been free. It is this other, this self, that is not free that I have not set free, but have placed into a deeper bondage instead. The body is my vehicle, but how can it help carry me to my goal if it has become a broken vessel? His revelation was answered by the smile of eternal grace. For at that moment there appeared in the presence of Gautama a young woman named Sujata, who had vowed to the tree spirit he was sitting under that upon the birth of her longed-for child she would make noble offerings to the tree every year. She bowed before Gautama and offered him the rice and milk porridge that she had prepared, believing he was the keeper of the tree's spirit. Sitting on the opposite bank, the band of five were appalled to see their teacher eating substantial food. Look, they said to each other, he's eating householders' food and he's given up the struggle for enlightenment. Without another word, they got to their feet and began to wander off in the, in the direction of Benares. Gautama, nourished from the porridge, fell into a deep reverie and did not even notice their departure. The next phase of his quest had now begun to take hold in his mind. He realised that in order, to, in order to continue his journey, he would need to bring his body into balance with his mind, thereby restoring his spirit. He began eating again in a normal way, taking his begging bowl into Uruvela, where he was once again in the presence of everyday people. Gradually, his health began to return, and with it, his powers of reason. He thought, There is a pattern to our lives that we cannot see, but must live, and in living, fulfil the destiny of its design. But he could not yet see that he had to arrive at the border of death, and to the depths of despair, before he would be able to reach the heights he aspired to for one could not be experienced without the other. He had to become the equal of death and of life. His six-year ordeal in the wilderness had been completed, and now, at the age of thirty-five, with all of his bridges burned, as naked as a newborn child and even more alone, he was about to enter his final transcendence. 
With his strength renewed and calm in spirit, Gautama again made his ritual climb up Mount Pragbodhi to the cave in which he took his meditations. One day the quaking of the earth rendered the cave too dangerous for sitting, and as Gautama began descending the mountain, a heavenly voice whispered, There is a diamond seat beneath a Bodhi tree, southwest of here, across the Niranjana River. With no more instruction than that, he set his foot upon the path that would lead him to the mentioned tree, not knowing that his life would soon be changed forever. Standing before the Bodhi tree, Gautama peered through its tangle of branches into its cavernous shade, and although he had forgotten about the diamond seat mentioned in the heavenly instructions, he saw that he was meant to find his place here and seek the enlightenment that he had long sought and that now seemed to have been claimed for him from above. Gautama was startled to hear the singing voice of a boy carrying a basket of sweet grass on his back. What are you called? Gautama asked the boy. Swastika, the boy answered. Good fortune, Gautama exclaimed, for that was what the meaning of the boy's name was. May I have a bundle of your sweet grass to make a seat for myself? The boy happily obliged and, resuming his singing, continued on his way. Gautama moved through the tangled vines of the Bodhi tree and, facing east, as he took his customary lotus position, sitting on the mat made from the grass he had been given. Closing his eyes, he vowed that he would not again arise from this spot, even at the cost of death, until he had attained supreme and absolute wisdom. As expected, Gautama's resolve materialized the diaphanous form of Mara, who projected his demons, creating through the power of illusion projections of power through acts of war, the pleasures of the senses, through, through seductive dancing girls, and pure reason through the achievements and allure of the intellect. But Gotama, because of his long, arduous struggle with his own weaknesses, had, in overcoming his fears, defeated his own demons until he had arrived at the brink of complete self-realization. He made quick work of Mara, who knew that his tenure had been permanently broken by the coming Buddha. Not finished, not finished, not finished. <laughs> Just warming up. <laughs> so that was uh, from David Kerdian's uh, account, woven together from various scriptural sources. And this is um, Bhikkhu Nyanamoli's translation of the life of the Buddha. And this first passage comes from the Sutta Nipata, and it's uh, describing uh, the uh, <coughs> the same situation where the Buddha has, um, just before the Enlightenment, has uh, s uh, set himself down and, uh, uh, say, put his resolution in place. And uh, this is all in, uh, in verse, which Bhikkhu Nyanamoli has very um, sort of carefully crafted into um, English verse as well. As I strove to subdue myself beside the broad Niranjara, absorbed unflinchingly to gain the true surcease of bondage here, Namuchi came and spoke to me with words all garbed in pity. Thus, uh, Namuchi is another name for Mara. Namuchi came and spoke to me with words all garbed in pity. Thus, oh, you are thin and you are pale, and you are in death's presence too. A thousand parts are pledged to death, but life still holds one part of you. Live, sir. Life is the better way. You can gain merit if you live. Come, live the holy life. 
and pour libations on the holy fires. And thus a world of merit gain. What can you do by struggling now? The path of struggling too is rough and difficult and hard to bear. Now Mara, as he spoke these lines, drew near until he stood close by. The Blessed One replied to him as he stood thus, O evil one, <laughs> O cousin of the negligent, you have come here for your own ends. Now merit I need not at all. Let Mara talk of merit then to those that stand in need of it. For I have faith and energy and I have understanding too. So while I thus subdue myself, why do you speak to me of life? There is this wind that blows, can dry even the rivers running streams. So while I thus subdue myself, why should it not dry up my blood? And as the blood dries up, then bile and phlegm run dry. The wasting flesh becomes the mind. I shall have more of mindfulness, of understanding. I shall have greater concentration. For living thus, I come to know the limit to which feelings go. My mind looks not to sense desires. You see a being's purity. Your first squadron is sense desires. Your second is called boredom. Then hunger and thirst compose the third. And craving is the fourth in rank. The fifth is sloth and acidy. While cowardice lines up as sixth. Uncertainty is seventh. The eighth is malice, paired with obstinacy. Gain, honour and renown besides an ill-won notoriety, self-praise and denigrating others. These are your squadrons, Namuchi. These are the black ones fighting squadrons. None but the brave will conquer them to gain bliss by the victory. I fly the ribbon that denies retreat. Shame on life here, I say. Better I die in battle now than live on in defeat. There are ascetics and Brahmins that have surrendered here, and they are seen no more. They do not know the paths the pilgrim travels by. So, seeing Mara's squadrons now arrayed all round with elephants, I sally forth to fight that I may not be driven from my post. Your serried squadrons, which the world with all its gods cannot defeat, I shall now break with understanding, as with a stone a raw clay pot. So then we go to the account of the uh, Enlightenment itself. And this is from uh, the Buddha's the, uh, account of it himself in the sutta called The Noble Quest. Now when I had eaten solid food and had regained strength, then, quite secluded from sensual desires, secluded from unwholesome states, I entered upon an abode in the first meditation, which is accompanied by thinking and exploring with happiness and pleasure born of seclusion. But I allowed no such pleasant feeling as arose in me to gain power over my mind. With a stilling of thinking and exploring, I entered upon an abode in the second meditation, which has internal confidence and singleness of mind without thinking and exploring, with happiness and pleasure born of concentration. But I allowed no such pleasure as arose in me to gain power over my mind. With a fading as well of happiness, I abode in onlooking equanimity, mindful and fully aware, still feeling pleasure with the body. I entered upon an abode in the third meditation, referring to which the noble ones announce, he has a pleasant abiding who looks on with equanimity and is mindful. But I allowed no such pleasant feeling as arose in me to gain power over my mind. 
With the abandoning of bodily pleasure and pain, and with the previous disappearance of mental joy and grief, I entered upon an abode in the fourth meditation, which has neither pain nor pleasure, and the purity of whose mindfulness is due to unlooking equanimity. But I allowed no such pleasure as arose in me to gain power over my mind. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, bright, unblemished, and rid of imperfection, when it had become malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed, I inclined my mind to the knowledge of recollection of past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives, that is to say, one birth, two, three, four, five births, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty births, a hundred births, a thousand births, a hundred thousand births, many ages of world contraction, many ages of world expansion, many ages of world contraction and expansion. I was there, so named, of such a race, with such an appearance, such food, such experience of pleasure and pain, such a life term. And passing away thence, I reappeared elsewhere, and there too I was so named, of such a race, and with such an appearance, such experience of pleasure and pain, such a life term. Passing away thence, I reappeared here. Thus, with details and particulars, I recollected my manifold past life. This was the first true knowledge attained by me in the first watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who is diligent, ardent and self-controlled. But I allowed no such pleasant feeling as arose in me to gain power over my mind. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, I directed, I inclined my mind to the knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of beings. With the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, I saw beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly, happy and unhappy in their destinations. I understood how beings pass on according to their actions. These worthy beings who were ill-conducted in body, speech and mind, revilers of noble ones, wrong in their views, giving effect to wrong view in their actions, on the dissolution of the body after death have reappeared in states of privation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, even in hell. But these worthy beings, who were well conducted in body, speech and mind, not revilers of noble ones, right in their views, giving effect to right view in their actions, on the dissolution of the body after death, have reappeared in a happy destination, even in a heavenly world. Thus, with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, I saw beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly, happy and unhappy in their destinations. I understood how beings pass on according to their actions. This was the second true knowledge attained by me in the second watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who is diligent, ardent and self-controlled. But I allowed no such pleasant feeling as arose in me to gain power over my mind. When my concentrated mind was thus purified, I directed, I inclined my mind to the knowledge of exhaustion of taints. I had direct knowledge, as it actually is, that this is suffering, that this is the origin of suffering, that this is the cessation of suffering, and that this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. I had direct knowledge, as it actually is, that these are the taints, this is the origin of the taints, this is the cessation of the taints, and that this is the way leading to the cessation of taints. Knowing thus and seeing thus, my heart was liberated from the taint of sensual desire, from the taint of being 
and from the taint of ignorance. When liberated, there came the knowledge. It is liberated. I had direct knowledge. Birth is exhausted. The holy life has been lived out. What had to be done has been done. There is no more of this to come. This was the third true knowledge attained by me in the third watch of the night. Ignorance was banished and true knowledge arose. Darkness was banished and light arose, as happens in one who is diligent, ardent and self-controlled. But I allowed no such pleasant feeling as arose in me to gain power over my mind. This is the the um, the key points of the the uh, career of the, the the Buddha. This moment of enlightenment and um, uh, the as we can hear from this account, there's uh, and their reflections on uh, and <coughs> the intention to to not move from this spot until total enlightenment has been gained. And the, that um, is a, a, a dynamic that many of us experience on, on a smaller scale. So, okay, I'm going to come to Tisarana. Okay, meditation day. Right, focus, focus. And then Mara's uh, uh, companions come along. The, the, the armies, the, the forces of fear, the forces of attraction, the forces of reason come along and uh, the attention gets pulled this way and that. So it, it's interesting that the, uh, when the Buddha was uh, talking with the other enlightened uh, monks on one occasion, they each described their own particular uh, sort of focus for practice. And uh, Sariputta was you know, talking about one who has accomplished all levels of concentration and Ananda, one who's memorized all the teachings, and Mughalana, one who's able to develop all the psychic powers. The, the faculty that the Buddha mentioned uh, in that, that description in the Mahagosinga Sutta, he said it was, uh, it was resolution, was the faculty that the Buddha highlighted. Like, one who will sit down and say, I will not move from this spot, even though my blood dries up and my bones turn to dust until full enlightenment has been realized. So, uh, he was born in the month of May, so he had that kind of, um, not that I'm a big astrology fan, but he had that kind of uh, bullish <laughs> resolution of, uh, I'm not going to budge. And there was this kind of, this, the quality of resolution is, uh, is uh, in a sense, the, uh, one of the, the central features. Uh, and the, the fact that the Buddha chose that to say... Uh, uh, of all of the different spiritual faculties and qualities that uh, you could focus on, that was the one he uh, he say emphasised for himself that that commitment, and and, it's, uh, and I feel that's a, a helpful teaching. It's not something emphasised a lot, but uh, in the forest tradition, uh, which uh, Tisaran is a part of a, a uh, an ancient and and uh, a very uh, highly developed spiritual uh, system, you know, the forest meditation tradition, uh, as we find it today, one of the, this quality of resolution or determination is uh, probably the, the most often referred to factor of spiritual training. So the fact the Buddha referred to it, you know, one who has got aditana, resolution, 
That's uh, in our, our uh, forest monastic training, even though things are kind of comfortable here to a certain extent, you know, there's electricity, running water, <laughs> and uh, you know, we do have things to, d to deal with, like mosquitoes and black flies and midges and 20 degree below, 30 degree below weather in the winter. So we still have things that are, are challenging physically, mentally, but that quality of resolution is, uh, in a sense, that's the, the sort of the, the main theme of the forest tr tradition training. Um, and that it's a, a lifestyle that is deliberately simple. It's a, it's a, 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 um, a chosen form of simplicity to, to peel away the, the, uh, the things that cause distraction uh, or feed distraction and to live life in as simple and, uh, and uh, uh, uncomplica uncomplicated a way as possible so that we can witness the habits of mind of, of attraction, aversion, fear, desire, opinion, and so on and so forth. And uh, Ajahn V spent much more time with Lumpur Chow than I did, but uh, certainly during the couple of years I was in Thailand, the, whenever you got into conversation with either Lumpur Chow or other of the monks, and you're saying, oh, my mind is really you know, difficult, it's all over the place, then the response would be, Okton Daimai, can you endure? Or like, oh, I got I, I got really bad guts, you know. My my, uh, I've had I've had the runs for five days straight. Oak home day, mate. Can you endure? Like, I'm really frustrated. I can't stand being here. It's so boring. Nothing ever happens. Oak home day, mate. Can can you endure? And that or people would you know come to an Ajahn Chah and say, oh, I've got terrible trouble with my family. My brothers borrowed you know borrowed all this money from me. Then he lost it gambling. Yeah, my got two of my kids in hospital, and the rice the rice uh, harvest is is failing. Uh, <coughs> you know, what should I do? And then Lumpur Chow would often say, "Oktone daimai, daibo." Can you can you endure it? Is it bearable? And uh, and also when people would ask him, you know, when in Thailand, there's probably a few Thai people here, but when you, when you, Thai people meet, they often say, "Sabai are you well? Are you comfortable? Uh, and then the usual response is samadhi. Yes, I'm I'm well. I'm comfortable. And uh, but Lumpur Cha would often respond when people said samadhi my Lumpur. He'd say porton dai, which means it's endurable. <laughs> <laughs> it's bearable. <laughs> so, and they so they think, oh, you know, are you seriously ill or is there some problem? He said, no, it's just that's being more realistic about life. <laughs> so this. Uh, uh, it's not an accident or just a, 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 a by chance that this quality of uh, aditana, resolution and patience, patient endurance, is very much the, the sort of central mode of training in the forest tradition. Because, uh, again, the Buddha said uh, patient endurance is the supreme practice for burning up uh, unwholesome uh, habits. In the, the first instruction he gave to his enlightened disciples on discipline he said kanti paramang tapo titika nibbanang paramang vadanti buddha so patient endurance is the supreme practice for burning up as un unwholesome karma so and <coughs> and in that is the, the word patience doesn't mean like the english usage of the word patience is sort of gritting your teeth and being bloody minded like <coughs> it's a state of tension and you're, you're waiting for some painful thing to be over. 
but the patience which is the paramita and which the the uh, the quality of of um resolution and the practice of of uh, of patient endurance that the forest tradition revolves around is not a patience which is just a bloody minded gritting of teeth and and a, a kind of um ten, uh, sort of perfecting perfection of tension <laughs> but rather the uh, that uh, the patience that is uh, being spoken of that is uh, the result of resolution is it's a it's a parameter it's a, a a liberation it's what carries the heart across so it's a patience that is a giving up of time so when we think of being patient in the english use of the word you're waiting for some painful thing to be over and when it's over you'll be glad right? generally how we are waiting for the mosquito season to be over waiting for the rain to stop waiting for the bell to ring so you can move your legs but waiting is suffering right if you're waiting you're suffering there's a me who's waiting and there's time <laughs> and there's pain so that mixture creates suffering so the patience that is liberating is the, the heart that lets go of time that doesn't create time and is awake to the present that's why it's uh, uh, in a way the word, English word patience doesn't quite uh, match it but it's the closest that, that there is. So it's a, an open-heartedness to the present, uh, whatever it contains, uh, and, and that that readiness to be uh, resolute, to stay with the present quality of experience and say, here it is, <laughs> to open the heart uh, to that, whether it's painful or difficult or, or however it may be, that is the, uh, as the Buddha said, the, the supreme practice for burning up uh, unwholesome karma, burning up our, our unskillful habits. Many, uh, many, many times, those of us who've listened to Lumpur Sumedho's teachings and or read his books, you'll have heard him mention a particular insight that he had years and years ago at Wat Bapong, when he was restless and very uncomfortable, um, either during a, an all-night sitting or during a, one of Lumpur Chao's extensive three or four-hour Dhamma talks. And he was sitting there, and he was, his mind was going, I can't bear it, I can't bear it, I can't bear it. He, he was hot and sweaty, being eaten by mosquitoes, legs are aching. I can't bear it, I can't bear it, I can't bear it. And then he had this, this blazing insight. Even as I'm saying, I can't bear it, I'm actually bearing it. That's a lie. <laughs> if I don't believe that whining voice that says, I can't bear it, I'm actually bearing it. So that uh, patience, which is the, the paramita, that, the, that quality of, of resolution and, and so letting go of time, it's learning to not believe those, those inner voices that say that you should do this, you shouldn't do that, you should be this way, you shouldn't be that way. And I've got something really important to do over there. <laughs> Just to, uh, to be patient is to be able to listen to those voices and to open the heart to the present. That right now it's this way. The bell hasn't run, the Dhamma talk hasn't finished, <laughs> the rain hasn't stopped, it's like this. And in that, that letting go of time, then there's no me, there's no waiting, uh, there's maybe still some discomfort, but there's uh, the, the feeling of wrongness or uh, waiting for it to be over, the, the uh, imputing of, of uh, uh, say <coughs> unacceptability that, that that painful feeling or that, unqu that unpleasant quality it, it can't be accepted it shouldn't be here it doesn't belong it's not right that's let go of so the rain is exactly like this the ache in the leg is like this 
and that in that moment even though there might be some discomfort there's great peace and clarity as well so I feel that um, the Buddha's uh, the story of the Buddha's enlightenment we might focus upon the sort of the glorious moment of release <laughs> but it's also I feel helpful to reflect on that resolution that he sat down with you know, he didn't know <laughs> how long he was going to have to stay under that tree before the release happened uh, but he was prepared to say okay uh, uh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make this work I'm going to give my heart to this and that kind of uh, patience that goes uh, uh, say beyond the, the scope of our habits that lets uh, go of time that lets go of self-centered thinking that lets go of of all uh, say habits of thinking that is a, a wonderful resource that we can draw upon and if we want to arrive at the the liberation bit then I would uh, encourage us all to cultivate the patience bit and resolution as the preliminary you know if you don't if you don't work at building the building you won't have the shelter you won't put up the marquee <laughs> you won't have the shelter from the rain so that uh, developing patience and resolution this is the way we create the the, the basis the ground for that, that liberation to uh, to be fulfilled This is during his final journey in the last year of his life, Buddha's life. Visiting the Sanghas along the Hiranyawati River in Mala country, Gautama stopped for a two-week rest in Boganajara, where he addressed a large assembly of monks. Now the time will come when you must reassess the teaching from the sources available to you which will include your memory of my talks, or from the community of elders and leaders, or from some who are specialists in their memorization of the codes, or experts in the traditions. Each may insist, and you may believe, that this is the Dhamma, this is the discipline, this is the Master's teaching. When this time comes, it is imperative that you stand impartially before everything outside your own experience, and verify for yourselves if what you have heard or been taught is confirmed by the Vinaya or in the suttas. Only then can you judge if what you have heard comes from the Blessed One. For not all learning is correct, not all teaching is accurate, and you must refine your judgment and trust in your own integrity. From Boganajara the Buddha traveled next to Pava where they stopped to rest in a mango grove belonging to Chunda, the wealthy son of a goldsmith. When Chunda learned that the Buddha had stopped in his mango grove, after paying homage, he invited him to have his next meal at his home. Arriving with his monks the next morning, Gotama took the seat prepared for him beside his host. I have prepared a special dish of mushrooms and truffles for the Blessed One, Chunda said. Buddha examined the dish before speaking. I will have this. The monks may be served from the other dishes you have prepared. After the meal had been taken, the Buddha put his bowl aside, but before giving a Dhamma talk, he said to Chunda, Bury this special dish you have made in a hole, 
for no one else in the world can digest its contents, neither Brahman, Maras, princes, or ordinary men. Have you ever had that in Oma? Yes, Brahman Hachunda felt. Oh, it's a great lie, isn't it? <laughs> the kind of absolute culinary disaster. <laughs> Shunda whispered to Ananda that he feared his dish had made the Buddha ill, for it was evident by the way the Buddha was holding his side and from the sweat pouring on his brow that he had difficulty at times composing his words. When Gautama had finished his talk, Ananda helped him to his feet and conveyed Chunda's concern for the Buddha's well-being. He had wanted to make a special meal for you, Lord. The thought that he has made you ill has filled him with remorse and grief. Even should it hasten my death, he, he'd fee, he need feel no remorse. Tell him that even if this is to be the last meal before my death, it is valued as being equal to the dish of rice gruel prepared by the village girl Sujata just before my enlightenment. When Ananda returned to the Buddha's side after consoling Chunda, the Buddha said, Come now, we will go to Kusinara. They had not gone far before Buddha stopped and asked Ananda to prepare a seat for him beneath the tree. I'm thirsty, Ananda. Go fetch me some water from the stream we just crossed. Lord, the farmers in ox carts that were on the road just behind us have churned up the water. It will not be fit to drink until the, meat, uh, until the mud has settled. Go, Ananda, I need to drink now. But, Lord, the water is undrinkable. Now, Ananda. Ananda reluctantly rose to his feet and trudged to the stream. Kneeling on the bank above the mud-stirred water, he lowered the Buddha's bowl. To his amazement, the water entering his bowl was clear and fresh and undisturbed. The Buddha slept fitfully that night, and in the morning they set out again for Kusinara, traveling in slow stages. When they reached Naranja River, they were met by a commercial caravan led by a Malian named Pukusa, who had once been a disciple of Ajarakalama, but who, after leaving the order, had become a rich merchant. Gautama, remembering his youthful discipleship under Ajarakalama, was pleasantly disposed to receive the Malian merchant, who came forward to meet the Buddha bearing two shiny robes of gold cloth. You will honor me by accepting these, Lord, Pukusa begged, fearing his offering would be refused. Buddha acquiesced, understanding Pukusa's need to make a connection once again with the path he had left so many years before. When the merchant departed and they were alone again, Gautama watched as Ananda dressed himself and then helped Gautama on with his golden robe. How interesting, Gautama said, as the giving of these robes put Pukusa in touch with his own abandoned past, the donning of these robes reminds me of our origins as Sakya nobles. Ananda nodded in agreement, but when he stepped back to admire the Buddha, he was amazed to see that the golden robe that had glowed in his hands just moments before, had now lost all of its luster, for it was the Buddha that shone now, while the garment by comparison became a pale, lackluster yellow. 
This is a marvel, Lord. Can you feel what I see? This is a transformation that can happen but twice in a Buddha's life, causing the sheen of bright emanating gold to appear upon my countenance, making the skin clear and free of its aging components. Once on the eve of his enlightenment, and then on the eve of his final nirvana. In the first instance, it is the result of the abandonment of his former life. In the second instance, it is the release of whatever clinging to life still remains. Now we will remove these robes and bathe in the river, and after I have taken my rest, we will go to the Sala Grove at Kusinara, named after the twin Sala trees that grow there. Sleeping with his head to the north, between the twin Sala trees, Gautama had laid down to rest in a lion's sleeping pose, with one foot resting upon the other in a state of mindful awareness. While asleep, in full consciousness, he became aware that powder of sandalwood and petals of mandarava flowers were falling from the heavens. Those in attendance watched in veneration as the powder spread evenly over the Buddha's body, and as it fell, the singing of angelic voices could be heard above the clouds. Gautama opened his eyes to the blossoming flowers of the twin sala trees, and all marveled, as this was not their season for flowering. The leaves honor you, Lord, those closest to him said, bowing in reverence. This is not the highest honor, Gautama said, turning to Ananda. The highest honor for the Blessed One comes from the monks who walk in the Dhamma. Therefore, pledge yourselves anew once again before I depart, that you will walk in the Dhamma, that you will venerate and respect and honor the Dhamma. All answered, In this you have our pledge. Ananda was, Ananda was too overwhelmed to answer with the others and removed himself from the Buddha's sight. Leaning against the tree, he began to weep and commiserate with himself. My Lord, who is about to attain final nirvana, is thinking only of my welfare, and after all this time, I have not attained enlightenment. Sensing Ananda's absence, the recumbent Buddha asked where he had gone. Lord, Ananda was overtaken by your compassion, and feeling remorse at his own inability to attain enlightenment, he has removed himself from your presence. Knowing what was in Ananda's heart, the Buddha said, Go to him and say, Your teacher wishes to see his friend. Ananda composed himself and returned to his master's side. Do not lament my passing, Ananda. Have I not told you again and again that in this life we must face the departure of loved ones? For all that arises, falls, and all that appears, disappears. But there is no death, there is only separation, and for this we must be prepared. No Buddha has ever had a more faithful attendant than you, who has served me with loving kindness and without reserve for all these years. And more than this, you have instructed and guided those who walk the Dhamma. You make great merit, Ananda. It will be not long before you attain arhatship. Gautama knew that all who heard the words addressed to Ananda would receive guidance for their own inner work understanding that the greatest merit is earned by service, but that the privilege of service must first be earned. Ananda was made free to let go and stand on his own. 
but the thought of his master's departure was more than he could bear. Lord, he, re he pleaded, do not attain finding Ivana in this jungle village. Let us go on to Benares, where you'll be, you will be venerated by Brahmins, nobles, and warriors. It is beneath you to speak this way, Ananda. Go now into Kusinara and announce to the Malians that this is the last watch, and that they should present themselves, that it not be said of them in the time to come that the Buddha died in their presence and they were not in attendance. At Ananda's beckoning, the people came streaming out of the villages in great numbers, weeping and tearing at their hair, crying, The final nirvana of the Buddha has come. Soon the eye of the Great One will vanish from the world. Ananda was amazed at their grief and understood, as he had not quite understood before, the powerful influence of his master over the life of that place, and indeed of the whole world as he knew it. Ananda could see that he must not let each Malian pass before the Buddha, for if he had, the night would pass and the lines would still be forming. He therefore quickly gathered the representatives from the various clans and instructed them to address the Buddha, naming their family, retinue, and friends with the words, We salute with honor the Blessed One with our head at the Blessed One's feet. Just as the organized procedure was about to begin, a wanderer by the name of Subhadda pushed his way through the crowd. Perhaps it is more than mere chance, he thought, that I find myself here in Kusinara at the last watch before the Buddha attains final nirvana. All these years I have wandered, wishing to believe, but I am unable to overcome my doubts. Now is my chance to challenge and be challenged by putting myself before the Great One. He approached Ananda. Master, may I see the Buddha? When Ananda shook his head dismissively, Subhadda asked again, I've been riddled by doubts all my life. I've never come this far before. How can I turn back now that I have the Buddha in sight? This is not the time. The Blessed One is tired. No one may approach. Ananda refused Subhadda yet again, but with their voices raised, their words reached the Buddha's ears, and he called out to Ananda, Let him come. I know what he seeks. What I have to tell him, he will quickly understand. Subhadda paid homage to the Buddha and took his seat. Lord, I would like to know, among all these monks and Brahmins, some of whom are even recognized as saints, if there are any who have achieved nirvana, and if one may receive direct transmission from them as they claim. Do not trouble yourself with this, Subhadda. I will teach you the Dhamma. Be still now and attend to my words. As the Buddha spoke, the lamp of Dhamma was lit for Subhadda and his doubts erased. He knew now with ultimate clarity that he had spent his life avoiding the very thing he sought, and it was as if by magic that the Buddha had turned the coin and showed Subhadda what his life could be through belief, extinguishing what it had become through disbelief, freeing him to seek enlightenment and become what he was born to be. In the morning, Gotama called his monks to his side for the last time. It may be that some of you still have doubts about the Dhamma, or concerns over the rules of the Sangha, or questions about your path, or the way of transmission. Speak now, so that afterwards you will not say, 
I was face to face with my teacher but could not speak. Buddha waited for a response, but the monks, with heads bowed, many with tears in their eyes, could not speak. Do not be afraid if you are in awe of me, then tell your friend and let him ask for you. With a silence still unbroken, Ananda said, Lord, it is a wonder, it is a marvel. None speak because none have doubts about the Dhamma, the Sangha, or the path that leads to enlightenment. Buddha said, You speak from the confidence of your faith, Ananda, but it is with direct knowledge that I can affirm your statement. Each of these monks has entered the stream and is destined for enlightenment. Monks, all that appears must disappear. Whatever rises, dissolves, work out your salvation with diligence. Siddhartha, the Gautama, the Buddha, the Blessed One, having spoken his final words, in the heartbreak of silence left the world of appearances. I have another section to read. Monks, all that appears must disappear. Whatever rises, dissolves. Work out your salvation with diligence. So this will repeat some of the same things, but these these are the uh, quotations from the texts. And then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Bhikkhus, it may be that some bhikkhu has a doubt or a problem concerning the Buddha, or the Dhamma, or the Sangha, or the path, or the way of progress. Ask bhikkhus, so that you may not regret it afterwards. Thus, the teacher was face to face with us, and we could not bring ourselves to ask in the Blessed One's presence. When this, had, when this was said, the bhikkhus were silent. A second and a third time the Blessed One spoke the same words, and each time they were silent. Then he addressed them thus, Bhikkhus, perhaps you do not ask, because you are in awe of a teacher. Let a friend tell it to a friend. When this was said, they were silent. Then the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, It is wonderful, Lord, it is marvelous. I have such confidence in the Sangha Bhikkhus that I believe there is not one Bhikkhu with a doubt or a problem concerning the Buddha or the Dhamma or the Sangha or the path or the way of progress. You, Ananda, speak out of confidence, but the Perfect One has knowledge that here in the Sangha Bhikkhus there is not one Bhikkhu who has any doubt concerning the Buddha or the Dhamma or the Sangha or the path or the way of progress. The most backward of these 500 Bhikkhus is a stream enter, no more subject to perdition, certain of rightness and destined to enlightenment. Then the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus, Indeed, bhikkhus, I declare this to you. It is in the nature of all formations to dissolve, attain perfection through diligence. This was the Perfect One's last utterance. Then the Blessed One entered upon the first meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the second meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the third meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the fourth meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the base consisting of inf the infinity of space. Emerging from that, he entered upon the base consisting of the infinity of consciousness. Emerging from that, he entered upon the base consisting of nothingness. Emerging from that, he entered upon the base consisting of neither perception and non-perception. Emerging from that, he entered upon the cessation of perception and feeling. Then the Venerable Ananda said to the Venerable Anuruddha, Lord, the Blessed One has attained final Nibbana. No, friend, the Blessed One has not attained final Nibbana. 
he has attained cessation of perception and feeling. Then the Blessed One emerging from the cessation of perception and feeling entered upon the base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception. Emerging from that, he entered upon the base consisting of nothingness. Emerging from that, he entered upon the base consisting of the infinity of consciousness. Emerging from that, he entered upon the base consisting of the infinity of space. Emerging from that, he entered upon the infinity of upon the base consisting of the infinity of space. Emerging from that, he entered upon the fourth meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the third meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the second meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the first meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the second meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the third meditation. Emerging from that, he entered upon the fourth meditation. And on emerging from the fourth meditation, the Blessed One attained final Nibbana. With the Blessed One's attainment of final Nibbana, there was a great earthquake, fearful and hair-raising, and the drums of heaven resounded. With the Blessed One's attainment of final Nibbana, Brahma Sahambhati uttered this stanza, No being in the world but shall lay down the temporary compound of its person. And even such a teacher without peer in all the world, perfected with the powers enlightened, has attained complete extinction. With the Blessed One's attainment of final Nibbana Saka, ruler of gods, at a distanza, formations are impermanent, their very nature is to rise and fall, and there is none arises but must cease. True bliss lies in their stilling. With the Blessed One's attainment of final Nibbana, the Venerable Anaruda uttered this stanza, When even such as he, his mind at rest, remain bereft of breathing, Having no wants, the seer completes his time, intent on peace. He bore his feelings with untrammeled heart. His heart's release was like a flame's extinction. With the Blessed One's attainment of final Nibbana, the Venerable Ananda uttered this stanza, Oh, then was paralyzing fear. Oh, then the hare stood up with horror. The Enlightened One, supremely graced, attained the ultimate Nibbana. And the Blessed One, and with the Blessed One's attainment of final Nibbana, some bhikkhus, who were not without lust, stretched out their arms and wept, and they fell down and rolled back and forth. So soon the Blessed One has attained final Nibbana. So soon the Sublime One has attained final Nibbana. So soon the eye has vanished from the world. But those who were free from lust, mindful and fully aware, said, Formations are impermanent. How could it be that what is born come to being, formed, and bound to fall, should not fall. That is not possible. Then the Venerable Anaruda addressed the bhikkhus, Enough, friends, do not sorrow, do not lament. Has it not already been declared by the Blessed One that there is separation and parting and division from all that is dear and beloved? How could it be that what is born, come to being, formed, and bound to fall, should not fall? This is not possible. Deities are protesting, friends. But Lord, what sort of deities has the Venerable Anurud in mind? Friends, there are deities percipient of earth in space. They are tearing their hair and weeping, stretching out their arms and weeping, falling down and rolling down and crying. So soon the Blessed One has attained final Nibbana, final Nibbana. So soon the Sublime has attained final Nibbana. So soon the eye has vanished from the world. 
and there are deities percipient of earth and earth who are doing likewise. But deities who are free from lust, mindful and fully aware, say formations are impermanent, how could it be that what is born, come to being, formed and bound to fall, should not fall? That is not possible. The Venerable Anaruddha and the Venerable Ananda spent the rest of the night in talk on the Dhamma. Then the Venerable Anaruddha said to the Venerable Ananda, Go, friend, go into Kusinara, and announce to the Malians of Kusinara, Vasetas, the Blessed One has attained final Nibbana. Now it is time for you to do as you think fit. One. For those of us who know, have no psychic abilities, um, some of those phrases sound perhaps outrageous, uh, far out, distant, but for me, I think because I'm a kind of very earthy guy, to have a sense of humility and wonder around what I don't know is very important. And so when I first came across the more um, fantastical descriptions of other beings and other realms of consciousness and other attainments, my mind really didn't want to go there, very pragmatic. But to, just because I don't realize something, because I haven't seen something, to say it's not true, that's a kind of very limiting kind of conceit. So now, when I read these kind of phrases, I still don't know. I'm still the same kind of earthly guy. But there is a sense in me that consciousness, the realms of consciousness, the types of consciousness, the depths of meditation are, are, are so profound and, and, and so uh, extraordinary that who am I to say things exist or don't exist? And that kind of I should, I should think it is a kind of humility in, in, in the sense that I, I don't know, um, allows me to feel the wonder of the Buddha. And what, what, who was this being? Who was this amazing being whose teaching we participated in so many, so many, so many years ago? Um, and to kind of limit the Buddha to some kind of mindful exercise of walking slowly would, I think, be criminal. <laughs> you know, to limit the Buddha as being the ultimate psychologist, some people say, or, or these kind of very, perhaps Western, psychological limitations on, the, on the, the power and range of the Buddha's mind would, I think, be very unfortunate. But the beauty of it, to me, is that, well, I don't, I, it, it's not really paramount in my liberation from suffering, having those experiences or even believing them is not paramount, but just knowing that I believe or I disbelieve, or that I don't know, is really, the, I think, the essence of the awakened mind, that I don't know. I, 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 I have limitations, so that I can read that and say, yeah, there is awe, there is wonder, there is mystery, there are all these things that exist uh, in, in the universe, and that can exist in my own mind. And then, then when, I, when I go on that kind of consideration and, and, and reflection, then I, when I look at the Buddha image or when I read about the Buddha, there's something much, much 
vast and grander, more um, exalted and, and mysterious which arises in my mind. And that's, I guess, how I get my mind to devotion, because I'm, I'm, I'm not by nature a bhakti-type person, I'm more a kind of nuts and bolts kind of that. How do you fix things and so on? So, again, for you, I don't know how these, these readings strike you, but what you can know for sure is how they strike you. <laughs> and then when you know how they strike you and you just see that, that which knows is bigger than whatever your perception is. Right? So whether you believe or disbelieve, the knowing hasn't got the limitations of belief or disbelief. And that's, to me, that's the pathway of freedom. <laughs>